Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Johannes Ashtag, an assistant professor in psychology and a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence at Stanford University. Johannes directs a computational psychology and well-being lab. His research focuses on using social media to measure the psychological state of large populations and individuals to determine the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that drive physical illness, depression, or support psychological well-being. In this episode, we chat about how social media could be a lens to understand mental illness such as depression. Johannes also shared his thoughts on the emerging trends in social media and how some powerful technocrats in Silicon Valley might have some huge blind spots in understanding human nature. Without further ado, here's our conversation. so much for joining the podcast today. I am very excited to talk to you about this topic, social media and mental health. I feel like I'm one of those people who probably spend like way too much time on social media. So when I saw this is kind of your research area, I'm like, well, I need to listen to this. I need to learn more. And Uh I also want to provide a little bit context for our listeners. So we are recording this episode in early November 2022, which is not long after a lot of things that has happened uh, around the yeah. social media world. Yeah. a new owner and meta yeah. new layoff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll definitely come back to this, how the changing landscape of social media can influence people's psychological functioning. But maybe we can start with the paper that you shared with us, um, which is, has this title, Facebook Language Predicts Depression in Medical Records, which I think the title already is very straightforward and sending out a message. But I wonder if we can start by unpacking this paper a little bit. What did you do and what is, I guess, the major finding? Yeah, hello. So happy to be on the podcast. So just to sort of situate the idea of this paper a little bit, right? We are moving increasingly into digital spaces. We inhabit digital spaces socially. We inhabit them for work. We inhabit them more and more in the new normal after COVID. Um, and we leave digital traces in those spaces. In psychology, this used to be called behavioral residues, right? This goes back to sort of Sam Gosling's early work that you could go into the dorms of students and you could look around in the dorms and you can see, ah, a conscientious person. All the shoes are lined up and all the pencils are sharpened so forth. Those were behavioral residues. And now we have the same in digital spaces. People interact with spaces, they write things, they like things, um, they post photos, and that is also a kind of just constant projection of the self, constant projection of social preferences, of emotions, of cognitions, and so forth. And so if you tell automated systems how to interpret this kind of signal, you can estimate a lot of traits and states about people. Um, There's been early work that showed that you can estimate personality from the likes that people share on Facebook, for example. Um, You can estimate personality from what people write on Facebook. Um, You can zoom out and aggregate all the language that people share on Twitter from a certain area. And you can say this county has this level of well-being or this county has this 
level of stress. And then you can also look at kinds of mental illness. And what we did in this particular paper is that we looked at what emergency room patients had shared on social media. It wasn't really, it didn't really matter that they're emergency room patients. It just gave us a way to intercept the patients. Um, so while people were waiting with non-critical conditions in emergency departments at, a, at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, they were approached by research assistants and the research assistants gave them an iPad and said, would you be okay with logging into Facebook and giving us access to your medical records? And then they would authorize a Facebook app that we had built. And the Facebook app would pull what they had written on their Facebook. It used to be called wall, whatever it is called now, feed. Um, not the private messages they'd sent to friends or what friends had sent them, but what they had sort of decided to share with their social circle. And then we would have that on the one hand. On the other hand, we have access to their medical records. Mm -hmm. And then what we would look for in the medical records is a, a first diagnosis of depression. And we'd say, is there something in the history of their posting on Facebook in the months and years before they have this first diagnosis of depression in the medical record that could have told us that they would be diagnosed with a depression? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. So there are markers of depression in these digital traces, markers of low mood, markers of rumination, of loneliness, basically what you expect based on the depression of the clinical literature that, that these algorithms can pull out and that can be sort of an early warning system for future depression. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. We'll definitely dive deeper into the kind of ideas of these digital traces more. But I'm kind of curious... Why did you choose depression? Like, why did you choose depression over, for example, anxiety or other potential like mental health issues that can be embodied in the digital space? Um, so as a researcher, I'm a generalist. So I, I try to go for the things that matter the most in mm -hmm. domains. Um, depression is the most prevalent mental illness, right? So the population prevalence of depression is... Um, around, it depends on who you ask, it depends what criteria, it depends what year, but somewhere between around 10 to 20% of the population at any given point will be depressed. It's the most prevalent mood disorder um, and then followed by anxiety. Um, so between the two of them, depression and anxiety, they're highly comorbid. They make up the vast majority of the mental health disease burden. Mm -hmm. So they, they present the most promising target for these kind of early detection systems. Mm -hmm. I should also say, if you want to work on things that are become rarer and rarer in the populations, such as schizophrenia mm -hmm. or more sophisticated or more nuanced personality disorders, um, that just gets harder and harder to do with these artificial intelligence mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Simply because, if you think about it, if 1% of the population has something, then mm -hmm. if you build an algorithm and says nobody has it, mm -hmm. it's correct 99% of the time. And it's very hard to build an algorithm that's correct more than 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. right? in, in machine learning, we call this the most frequent class. Um, anyway, and so it, just for both in terms of impact as well in terms of what makes sense 
right? Mm -hmm. and when it comes to these data science questions, um, we have a saying, data is king. You also you also always have to look at these things from the angle of, of what can be mm -hmm. done. Uh, it just makes the most sense. I see. That makes a lot of sense. So now let's zone in on this idea of digital traces. I know in this paper that you primarily looking at the text posts, like what are the things they wrote on their Facebook. And I guess if you have thought about like looking at other forms in which people express themselves uh, on right. the platform, because one thing that pops up in my head when I was reading this, like what about people who choose to, you know, like share emo music in late night because they're feeling sad? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, of course, right? I mean, we get this, we get this question a lot and I understand that because, um, Nobody's on Facebook anymore. We've really seen the generation stratify from platform to platform. So the big migrations were just to sketch them out from Facebook to Twitter, to Insta, to Snap, to mm -hmm. now TikTok. Um, and it's worth remembering that the heyday of Facebook, Facebook started in earnest in 2008. That was... 14 years ago. That was not a long time ago. And perhaps the most positive sentiment towards Facebook was um, during the Arab Spring, which I think was 2011. So that was just over 10 years ago. And what we've seen now is that this has become so fast that even generations are now subdividing by age brackets into these different platforms. And yeah, and so that it's become it's become not obvious on how to collect data across large cohorts because there's so much stratification even within generation. And then in terms of data streams, we've done some of those. We've done um, certainly mental health prediction from images, for example, we've done also with an eye towards Instagram, certainly text messages and chat messages. Um, and the community as a whole that's trying to do this has looked at other modalities, including the music being shared. Um, generally, you can get some mediocre prediction accuracies out of late night music emo sharing, I think you called it. Wait, that's actually a predictor that has been looked at. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the perhaps the key ingredient here is late night. I mean, not sleeping is actually one of the DSM symptoms. Of, of depression. And so um, there are a variety of feature spaces that can be used to predict depression, including uh, your phone sensors. Your phone has a pretty good idea when you go to sleep and when you wake up, particularly mm -hmm. if you're, um, I hope you're better than me. And it's not the last thing you looked at and the first thing you look at <laughs> when, you, when you fall asleep, right? Mm -hmm. um, but your phone also has a light sensor that's pretty accurate. So in principle, there is a chance um, for data feeds that can augment or in part replace something like text analysis. Or if you wear an aura ring, I'm wearing an aura ring, for example. Oh, wow. With biosensors that are very mm -hmm. fine grained. And for example, this one has heart rate variability, which indexes mm -hmm. sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system balance, which is a crude but sort of semi useful indicator of stress load on the system. Um, so there are, there is the potential of augmenting data streams. Um, I should say that five years ago, I think 
I and I think many others had this dream that if you just combined enough of these data streams, you really get a sort of wraparound potential for depression prediction and mental health monitoring surveillance. And what we've seen, actually our consortium was one of the first to publish on this, um, we've combined sensor data with some of these text data streams, mm -hmm. and the prediction accuracies overall haven't really budged much. Huh. Which, And looking at the rest of the literature, which makes me everybody's sort of stuck at the same ceiling of prediction accuracies, uh, which are around 0.7 area under the ROC curve, so uh, it's a little bit hard to translate, but th roughly think accuracy of three and four. Yeah, and so it's not at all obvious that there's so much predictive power left on the table. And that's, of course, in the context of relatively small prediction accuracies all across psychology behaviors and psychological states tend to be correlated at 0.3 max, mm -hmm. right? And it's not at all obvious that um, it could get that much higher, even if you take the totality of all digital behaviors, right? And ingest them with machine learning. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating because I definitely had this kind of intuition that, oh yeah, of course, if you get more data, you will like get better performance model and you will be able to do more precise predictions. Yeah. And really connects to my next question, which is, do you see a potential clinical applications of these work? It sounds like if we're stuck at a prediction rate like this, there's always the risk of misdiagnosing people. Right. So what do you see that the future of this work? Yeah, it's it's funny. I actually had dinner with a with a doctor last night, and we we, we talked this through. Um, so in aggregate, so there's different kinds of use cases, and there are different costs. The different use cases place different costs on false positives and false negatives. And so, for example, for population screening, if you're just trying to find cases that otherwise would have not been found at all, right? If you miss some, okay, that's what would have happened anyway. That's treatment as usual, right? Um, and all the extra ones are extra. Uh, those are good things. And if you identify some people that don't have depression with depression, they might just think, oh, yeah, no, sorry, this is useless, right? And there's like, let's say you sent them digitized, computerized cognitive behavioral therapy or something, or you send them some digital treatment modality. Um, right in that case, you're like, okay, we can live with this. But then, at the individual clinical context, like, ooh, now it's really costly, right? I mean, a we're missing a lot of people. That's really costly. And as I learned last night, if we're misdiagnosing somebody as depressed, so we're saying they are depressed, but they're not really. That might also ruin the relationship with the patient mm -hmm. or with your client. Um, and so I think where we're trending, all the responsible people in the space are trending, is this This is the first step of a diagnosing cascade. So mm -hmm. what this is, is a, right? So this is the first step that just says, hey, there are some big data indicators here that just qualify you for a, clean, a screening survey. Screening surveys have very high sensitivity and fairly mm -hmm. high specificity, right? They can They can be deployed, right? And you say, okay, Big data says this might be a candidate for a survey. You give the survey. Survey says, yep, confirmed. Now talk to a clinician. Right Now you have a pipeline. Um, and we actually know from some of the work on signal detection 
that by the time you have three different types of screening together like this, they mm-hmm. actually cover one another's mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's quite okay then in the beginning if you can suffer the, the false positives. Um, it's quite okay then in the beginning to overdiagnose a little because the other ones will cover for you. Interesting. The downstream um, so- steps will cover. Yeah, so in this system that you just described, which I think is very fascinating because I've never thought about this kind of multi-layer, like I guess, uh-huh. structures of the screening process, but wouldn't that also come with great cost of like privacy? So it requires that the users of a certain social media platform to be very aware that, okay, like your data is actually being used to do this. So what I, I, I absolutely a lot of a- a- No, a- absolutely. No, that's a, that's a, so the, the crisis of trust in this space is huge. So a lot of these discussions are somewhat synthetic in that there's a few things that are just not sort of deployable, right? So there's the question of trust and privacy. Uh, and the sentiment certainly around Facebook is quite negative. And the privacy mm-hmm. sentiment around that is quite negative. Um, and then the other question is there's actually also a liability question, which is, if the big data indicators say, hey, there's something wrong here, this might be discovered during legal discovery. Let's say this patient commits suicide, God forbid. Mm -hmm. And then this gets discovered during legal discovery and an argument could be made. Well, you had an indicator, you didn't act on it, you're liable. Mm -hmm. And now the lawyers of the medical system say, let's not have these indicators. Right, and so liability is unclear. Um, it's also unclear who pays for this, how the incentives are aligned. Even though the Affordable Care Act did did quite a bit to align the incentives here, the real the the real payers who might be interested in this conceivably are insurances. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give your insurance access to your social media? I mean, we had a version of this happened in the UK where car insurance asked for access to your social media to price your insurance policies. What? That lasted about five days before the, <laughs> before, before the backlash drowned that in the ocean. So and the fact that this is social media is sort of secondary, right? So what we're really showcasing here is um, pipelines for text-based detection. Mm-hmm. And the new generation of these studies don't run on Facebook. They run on phone keyboards, custom phone keyboards. So they run on text messages. They run on any kind of modality of text. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. It just needs to be about a thousand words, which isn't that much. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a version of this, which nobody's implemented. Um, and I've only run a prototype off um, to do this on email. If you could, if you could run these kind of text-based models over email, you could do this with much higher accuracy. Just because there's just so much more text than email on a daily basis, right? Just think about all the emails you write a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, there are there are lots of unclear questions, and it's really never been, as far as I know, it's never really been put together in a whole pipeline. So the as so often these social technological solutions, the hard problems are not how do you train the machine learning. Mm-hmm. The hard problems is what are the ethical questions? What's the data protection? 
are the stakeholders? How is this reviewed? What are the legal questions? How is this audited? How are mm -hmm. people educated? Right? These are these are much harder questions than you know. How do I regularize my language model? Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's definitely. I feel like a conversation that especially needs to be happened more often in Silicon Valley among the tech industry. Um, and there's another question that I have when I was reading this paper. You mentioned that the overall society's impressions over Facebook is very negative. And there's also related negative impressions on Instagram. I listened to this podcast episode on like Instagram's influence on teenage girls' self-images. Yeah. And the way that the algorithm works, it just seems to worsen this body image issues among young girls. So yeah. I wonder if there's also this kind of interplay between people who use uh, social media and people who are subject to the influence of the algorithms are more likely to develop certain mental health illness. Is that a kind of an area of research that you have looked at? And I wonder how that also potentially varies platform by platform, since I feel like each social media platform that we're using all come with a different, slightly different flavor and slightly different that's way right. of regulating the content. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. So that's not exactly my line of work, but I'm sort of loosely familiar. Um, I think what we've learned over the last decade is that the situation is quite complicated. And that there is a lot of specificity in the demographics of the cohorts. Um, to the extent that we were expecting a super simple main effect, more social media makes everybody unhappy. That really hasn't been borne out by the data. Mm -hmm. And it, that's in part because both sides of that are overly simplistic. Mm -hmm. A, they're d very different kinds of audiences, right? So there are adolescents who are engaged in identity formation in predominant reference to peer groups, right? For whom this massively available comparison set becomes incredibly identity salient, right? And that is your teenagers on Instagram deleting images when they don't get enough likes mm -hmm. because their identity brand is diluted when they're not receiving sufficient social reward and reinforcement for their identity need. Right? I mean, that that is that process. We have a developmental process that's interacting with a kind of user interface design mm -hmm. that's interacting with a social environment. So that's a complicated statement. And at minimum, we need to distinguish different kinds of social media use as well, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, right, I gave you one example, right? So this is an identity formation, reward-seeking, or social identity formation-seeking kind of social media use. But there are also just, there are elderly people who just like super happy that they get to see their grandchildren play in the garden, just, right. makes, their, just makes their day. Right, and they they don't have any identity needs that are not being met, right? They don't do downward comparison with you know with the other world people, you know whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's not happening, right? And so there is just specificity needed on who is who is using social media and how are they using it and what's what else is going on in that place. And there is there's also 
the final piece of specificity that's needed is on the arrow, the direction mm-hmm. of the arrow, right? So it's not only does social media use potentially cause mental illness, mm-hmm. but it's also that mental illness causes more social media use. Mm-hmm. If you tend to be more anxious, mm-hmm. you may be more anxiously checking mm-hmm. right? these social comparison sets. Your social anxiety might really take hold of your social persona online and you find yourself just refreshing your feed endlessly, right? Mm -hmm. And and then if you sample this with a correlational time use study, right? And you say, how much time did you spend yesterday on Facebook, right? And what's your anxiety? You have no handle on any of this. Mm -hmm. Right? And then if if you have a sample that mixes genders and ages and right and use cases you get you get just a murky mess and that's roughly where the literature is mm-hmm. right and then okay so and so all of this complexity we're beginning to disentangle mm-hmm. and you know in all fairness some of the most sort of penetrating research on this was actually done at facebook mm-hmm. or by meta mm-hmm. on itself Right, and that was not hard to that, that that was not easy to read for them. I'm sure. Right. I mean, I understand the understandable outrage, but there's also something to be said for a company that dissects itself. Right. And so when the Facebook papers came out or the Instagram papers, right, there were slide decks summarizing research findings. I don't know if you've looked at them. I've looked at them. Mm-hmm. I was there's actually quite decent research design trying mm-hmm. to figure out what's going on and get the causal arrow figured out. Right? Mm-hmm. And these questions are complicated for all the reasons that I mentioned. And now there's an, and now let me just zoom out one more layer and tell you why all of it is super complicated. Mm-hmm. And um, this goes a little bit to an argument that Jonathan Hyde has been making implicitly for a while. There might be a constriction of variance, right? Because... If we're trying to figure out if social media is bad, so something's been happening for the last 10 years, right? I mean, we have self-harm among adolescents, particularly among female mm-hmm. adolescents and young adults, increasing quite dramatically. We're talking factor of two. Depression rates increasing quite dramatically, factor of two. Like something is qualitatively happening over the last 10 years. That is quite worrying. Mm-hmm. And nobody quite knows what it is. And everybody's best guess, right? I give you the timeline with Facebook. That's about the last 10 years, right? Everybody's best guess is that it's social media, but we don't know, right? The correlation mm-hmm. is not causation, right? right? Just because two timelines line up, right? Uh, doesn't mean that's, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the extent that we want to figure out is it social media, Everywhere in science, we rely on control and treatment groups or correlations or other regression frameworks where we have variance that is distributed over a full range of predictors. Find me the young people not exposed to social media, Mm. right? That would show me the range of social media use, right? We're just talking, in terms of social media use, we're just talking medium social media use to excessive social media use 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, and maybe we can find a few kids that were locked away in some faith community or homeschooled or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe somebody can hunt them down to, to get them into a control group. But the point is, we don't really have variants across the whole range of social media use. Mm-hmm. So our ability to scientifically establish the relationship between social media use and mental health and mental health impact is quite limited. And you say, okay, well, but I know somebody who's not on social media. Yeah, but that might not be relevant because all their friends are on social media. So whatever identity processes and identity curation processes have been kicked off through social media are still in operation in that person's life through their circle of friends. Right? And so there's also a, a sort of crisis just of how would we even know? And so this whole literature and this whole question is actually quite complicated. And um, I would resist these super simplistic explanations one way or the other. And I think it's very tempting, right? On certain Netflix movies make very tempting, simplistic arguments. Right. That's so fascinating. I've never thought about in this direction. And also, I completely agree with you. Like a lot has happened in the last 10 years. It's not only just the emergence of social media. There's also this kind of a global plur- polarizations like that happens like across all of the countries. And this is just so fascinating. And I'm also kind of wondering about because I know the social media sector is very fast evolving, like Every other day, there will be like a new social media app claiming to be different. I don't know if you know that there's yep. Be Real. It will pick yep. a random time during the day and you will need to get on your phone and just like take a picture. It will have your post, your face in front and also your camera to show what you're doing. So there's a lot of different ways that um, the social media is developing. And what do you see? This is a very big picture question, but what do you see of the challenges and the promises as this evolving landscapes of social medias? And of course, there's also the kind of related to metaverse. Like, are we going to move there one day? Um, you know, <laughs> the king is dead, long live the king, right? Um, there are commentaries now, particularly with the devaluing of meta in the last you know, year or so uh, on the stock market that we're looking at the death of social media. And um, I think that is very much premature. My sense is, though, that the world... So the world tends to go through these hype cycles. We know this across domains and across technologies. And we are, with, I think, with social media, we've gone through this inflationary hype bubble now. And we've hit, we've hit this trough of despair. So to the extent that we were over ebullient about the potential of social media to cause political revolution in the Middle East and solve for democracy and solve for human connection, Silicon Valley, to the extent that it was projecting itself into the global discourse, it was sharing a techno-determinist framing. And initially, this was techno optimism. So technology is here to change the world. Let's just solve for X. Let's just share our rare use resources, Airbnb and Uber. And right. I mean, it's like, oh, yes, this is obviously the way of the future. Right. Um, So this was techno optimism. And then we had the first sort of major faux pas. We had Cambridge Analytica. 
we had the first societal breakdowns, I'm thinking, for example, Myanmar, um, where this sort of techno-optimist idealism was just shattered um, by profit motive and lack of foresight, let's put it mildly. Um, and then people were very quick to flip into techno-pessimist framing to the point that Cambridge Analytica may have hacked the was the reason that Trump won the election that was an available narrative for which mm-hmm. I can see knowing the effect sizes in literature I can see no evidence right mm-hmm. like targeted ads based on personality may have optimized the ad spend by 30% which in a market that is so oversaturated with ad spend will have made negligible difference Right. These narratives are totally overdone, both the positive and the negative. Right? And so, but people have tired. People have tired not only of the toxicity of these spaces that has emerged, but they also, I think, have tired of talking about these spaces incessantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason why we see this hyper-stratification with these generations that jump onto new platforms is they just sort of want to have their own thing and just want to connect to one another. Mm-hmm. I think, um, so Stanford, for example, has a new uh, social media website. It's called Fizz. It's what like, is that? Sorry, I've been <laughs> like, I have never heard of that. Can't believe, can't believe I'm breaking this to you. So Stanford has a uh has has a social network only for people on campus where the undergrads are communicating about what's going on on campus. Oh. It, it's pseudonymous. Uh-huh. Uh, it's basically Yik Yak, but nobody was around for Yik for Yik Yak. What was Yik Yak? I'm so sorry. This is my outdated knowledge of social media. No, it's, it's all right. I am, I am old is what we're learning here. So it's basically, um, it's basically just a feed where people can pseudonymous pseudonymously post what's going on in Stanford campus, which is honestly quite hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm really up to date on what's happening in the lunch halls at the moment and the, <laughs> and the contra- controversy, the nuances of the controversy uh, with, the, with the Stanford administration and the mascot. Um, but the point is that this is a very helpful back channel for the community and it's at the right level. Right? There is a shared, a, a group like a set of students on a campus has a shared set of interests that they'd like to organize around. and They have shared needs, such as belonging, that such a tool can meaningfully address. And a digital layer that addresses that mm-hmm. will be used. Right, And so people will build it and then people will invest in the kind of people build it because they realize that this might scale to many campuses, for example. Right? And so um, I think what had happened in the last 10 years is that these trillion-dollar behemoths in this space, Meta uh, primarily, has just basically squashed all of this or taken it in-house. Right? Mm-hmm. So, And I think where we're getting to and what we need to get to is that we have more organic 
small stuff that isn't weighted down by the negative brand sentiment and terrible decisions Mm -hmm. that these trillion-dollar quasi-nation states have made over the last 10 years. It is nice that there is an avenue for Stanford students to talk to one another that Mm -hmm. isn't owned by Meta, that isn't a Facebook group. Nobody wants to use a Facebook group to do this. Right. 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 Yeah. And so, and so, right. So there, there is a, there's a concept, right. So there's this concept of new sphere by, by Talat de Chardin, French philosopher, right. So the, rather than think so, behemoth-like in terms of what is the organizing system for all of human connection. Think about what are the bottom-up organic principles and organic platforms that connects people along particular axes of identity needs. And mm-hmm. once you look at the, the web through that lens, you realize, wait a second, Reddit is really successful. Mm-hmm. Subreddits are really successful, it turns out. Subreddit's a small community with a subreddit by subreddit moderation policy that takes care of itself. Yes. It's the only place on the internet that has sorted out the moderation problem, or one of the few places. Yeah. Pr- pretty well. Um, forums, good old-fashioned like bulletin board forums around some interests, some shared interests. I'm, I'm a backpacker, right? So I am on these backpacking forums. They work incredibly well. Like you get, you ask for advice, you get drowned in advice, in good advice professional advice you couldn't even pay for right i mean there there is a lot of goodwill and wish for connection and um, positive regard in the human mind and in the human heart and in the human species and we have broken ourselves in Mm -hmm. a few fundamental ways through polarization through our political system um, through these behemoths that are run by people who are really not designed to be in charge of society level questions. They're just not, right? They're not selected for it or trained for mm-hmm. it, right? Um, and so all of this is 14 years old, right? If you think about this over more than a generation's timescale, once this is two, three generations old, 40, 60 years old, and has reached maturity, we're actually thinking about ecosystems of these platforms and not single platforms. I, th- I think there is lots of reason for hope mm-hmm. that we, we find healthier ways to connect online than what we have right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's totally fascinating. I've never thought about like this kind of, it's almost kind of like organizing principles behind those social network that's, it seems like a lot of discussion these days have been centered around, oh, like it is, we, let's just all blame on Twitter. Let's all just blame on Elon Musk. But there's a techno determinism. Mm-hmm. We're trapped in these techno determinist narratives. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, and, and it doesn't help that we live in a hyper capitalist society where capitalism and power gets hyper concentrated in the hands of a few white dudes who have their own space programs, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we have, we have trillion-dollar white dudes now who can act like nation-states. Mm-hmm. And there's something super bizarre about it. And, and that sort of, that also drives the techno-determinist narratives because they are quite determining, right? The nonsense 
that Elon is pulling with Twitter right now is determining in some strong sense of what that means, right? Yeah. So it sounds like that you are not convinced that we are going to all move to metaverse in, I don't know, five years. What do you think of this idea of like having a virtual reality replacing a lot of the functions of the reality? I am asking this question is because that's something that I've been thinking a lot about because it to me is even, it's a little bit, I wouldn't call it absurd, but it's definitely something that I feel like we're not ready yet because we don't even know how human mind construct reality. So how would we be able to recapture the essence of reality in through some, some fancy tech? What's your thought on this? Well, so I think, I mean, to give full credit to the tech bro aristocracy uh, who's thinking about this. So this is sort of conceptualized on a continuum from augmentation to, immer to full immersion, right? So from augmented reality to virtual reality. And I think certainly having less intrusive augmentation is appealing, mm -hmm. right? So you wear glasses. Imagine you had a little heads-up display in your glasses right? that nobody could see that would just show you like, oh, here's, here's you know, just heads-up, like your next meeting is in 10 minutes. And I just think like Google notifications or something intelligent and not annoying. Mm -hmm. um, that's clearly a winner, I think. Um, on the other hand, the heavy-duty migration into virtual spaces, I think, neglects how much of our intelligence and human presence is embodied mm -hmm. and how much people dislike wearing artificial glasses. <laughs> right. So I have to admit that I really got into VR over the mm -hmm. pandemic, and I actually had a great few months making many friends in VR oh. from, from from all walks of life. I got really into a number of games that, you know, I, I might not want to repeat you what they are, but <laughs> generally I'm like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what happened to the general. <laughs> you know, they are sort of friend, friends that I have now. Um, you know, one owned a bar in, in Louisiana. I'm like, yeah, I wonder what happened to him, right? Um, uh, and I really enjoyed that experience. I really deeply enjoyed that experience. Um, but there is just something oppressive about wearing these devices for long periods of time. That that will reduce, though, right? As these things will mm -hmm. become lighter and lighter, and the Quest Pro is already so much lighter to wear than the than the Quest Two. Um, so, I think the big question is: I think this is an absolute killer app for gaming. Mm -hmm. that is absolutely clear. But that's not the message that Meta would like to send, right? Mm -hmm. Meta would like us to think that we're going to be telecommuting to work with mm -hmm. in VR. Mm -hmm. um, I once had a funny, funny story. I, through a colleague, we met a VR research group from Italy. The, the meeting was in VR. And so... My friend and I, we showed up in VR in this VR meeting space, mm -hmm. and uh, and we're walking around and like, oh, okay, this is kind of tacky and 
probably a little bit stupid. And they were very stationary in VR. They're, they're, they're avatars. And we finally asked them, why are you also stationary? And they're like, well, we're on our computers. <laughs> like, so they were just treating this as Zoom. <laughs> so they're, 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 you know, even the VR researchers were sort of done with wearing the VR headsets. <laughs> it was just Zoom. <laughs> it's just a sort of a cartoon Zoom, you know. Um, so... I don't think the people who are really into the metaverse, particularly Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg, has so far struck me with his deep and penetrating insight into the nature of the human condition. Mm-hmm. And I imagine him, I think he has, he wouldn't do such a hundreds of billion of dollar gamble without having good pilot data. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he sort of hedged his, you know, he's a red team this sufficiently um, mm-hmm. in, in his own mind. But I'd be surprised if there weren't giant blind spots that he has mm-hmm. about what human beings are like. And I promise you that there are giant blind spots in the terms of risks that this has. So he said, mm-hmm. I heard him the other day on an interview where he said, you know, I really want that within the next, within 10 years, 1 billion people will be wearing these glasses, these Mm-hmm. And the immediate thought that I have is, who will these one billion people be? These will be adolescents and young people. Right. Maybe this one time you could think through in advance how that interferes with child development, with identity development, what kind of potential downsides that might create. Right? Does it really have to be scaled to a billion people before you realize that this has major negative consequences for an entire generation? Right. Do we then see that in self-harm statistics in 2030? Right. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> yeah. we reach the end of our time here, but I would like to thank you again for coming on our show. I feel like being a grad student, living in the heart of the Silicon Valley, it, it's just there's so much to think about, about how technology interacts with humans, which are, I guess, the target of our studies in the psych department. That's right. Yeah, we, we are human. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.